So we're coming to the end of our second full day of practicing together and um, the hall definitely feels quite a bit different than when we first arrived and your practice may not feel different, um, but just sort of the sense in the hall um, feels quite a bit more settled, I guess is how I would describe it, a little bit more collected. Oftentimes we use a phrase in, a, in offering a metta, in the metta practice, uh, may all beings have ease of mind. And uh, that's a particularly favorite one of mine, and it's one that I do for myself. Um, and I'll often do it, um, not just in, in a sitting meditation, but like in my everyday life when I'm walking around or driving or you know, other, other kinds of um, you know, challenging situations I might find myself in, I'll often fall back and in, in, uh, just bring that thought, that feeling up. And oftentimes I'll send it to myself or to the folks that are around me. So tonight I would like to talk about um, what ease of mind in relaxation is within an uh, insight meditation of Vipassana uh, Buddhist framework. Oftentimes when we think about relaxation, we kind of looking at our everyday life, um, you know, kind of world of convention, kind of often the world that we live in, um, we can see that people engage in a lot of different uh, activities, a lot of different ways to nurture relaxation in their life. Uh, things like TV, for instance. Okay, um, I think I read an article at some point in the last year or so that the average American, I don't know if I believe this or not, but the average American um, watches five hours of TV a day. And I wonder how the hell they can watch five hours of TV a day, <laughs> given the American society also averages like 50-hour work weeks, and it's like one of the hardest working cultures that we're in. Um, five or six hours of TV. I think, I'm saying five, but it could have actually been six. It's hard to believe, but these studies, whatever. Um, but people are watching a lot of TV, and clearly it is a form of relaxation you know, for a lot of folks. Uh, lots of different forms of entertainment, of course. Uh, lots of different forms of technology that enhance entertainment, make it available to us wherever we are, you know, pumping gas, they have TVs now, uh, uh, truly have TVs. I'm sure you've noticed that. Um, in fact, wherever you go, uh, there's some, something, music playing or TVs blaring. Um, music, of course, is a form of relaxation. Um, a lot of different physical activities that we may engage in. You know, if we're fortunate, we get chances to maybe do some hiking or... Um, spending time in nature, uh, exercise, going to the gym, or just uh, walking, going for walks, vacations um, are obviously, hopefully, vacations are designed to bring more relaxation into our life. I'm sure that's one of the values of having a vacation. I'm actually very pro-vacation. I think. Uh, Americans do not get enough vacation time, not enough downtime. Uh, so I do think that can be an important form of uh, relaxation. Um, but also alcohol and drugs, a very common form of uh, relaxation, of uh, bringing some degree of ease of mind to folks. Uh, now, when we look at these forms of relaxation, you know, I, I'm the last person to sit here, quite frankly, and, and uh, place judgment on uh, some of these forms of relaxation because obviously um, a lot of these activities are wholesome. Uh, some of them can be misused, and I think that's oftentimes the case sometimes, particularly th things like alcohol and drugs or TV even can be misused. Um, But I do want to point out some of the limitations when we rely 
exclusively on these forms of relaxation, this way of relaxing. Because quite often these, these activities, ways that we find, uh, ways that we find uh, how to create or how to discover more ease of mind, they're so often they're limited by a set of conditions. And I mean, a perfect example is vacation, you know, or uh, where you know, it can only come together at a certain time of the year. Oftentimes we have to work very hard in order to create the space and to get the resources depending on what our vacation standards are, what we need. Um, so clearly that, that's something limited by conditions. TV, power goes out, you're not at home, whatever. Uh, you know, relying on TV obviously as a refuge has its limitations for sure. Alcohol, drugs, the same thing. Uh, we're not going to sit and condemn uh, this totally, but, but at the same time, oftentimes uh, they can become very addictive because folks rely on that. As a, as a major form of stress release. And so these forms of relaxation become an escape. You know, they become an escape, a way of managing stress in our lives. And the refuge is very temporary. And one challenge in terms of relying on those kinds of, uh, you know, that form of relaxing is that... Um, it, it can create this sense, it can reinforce this sense that we have to have a set of conditions in order to experience that ease of mind. So oftentimes it creates this sense of craving and dissatisfaction about the present moment because we're looking outside of ourselves, we're looking for that set of conditions to come together so that we can finally, finally just be ourselves and relax without the pressures and demands that we feel are being imposed on us, or that we're engaged in, or that we're creating. So oftentimes they can just kind of distract. Now the thing about a lot of these forms, a lot of these activities and different forms of relaxation is that if one actually brings practice into it, I don't necessarily mean the sitting practice, but what I'm talking about is one brings awareness. Uh, one brings the capacity to actually be present in whatever you're doing. And that capacity to be present has to be earned. There's no doubt about it because of the way the mind is conditioned. But if we can develop that capacity to bring awareness into these activities, to uh, bring a sense, an ability to be present, then these activities are much richer. Tremendous amount of insight and learning can come out of any activity that we're engaged in. So it's not so much the activity, although obviously some activities, if we get hooked on, we grasp onto them or we over-rely on them, can become quite destructive. Thinking about uh, addiction to alcohol and drugs, for instance. Um, But um, a lot of these activities are very, they're they're useful, they're helpful, uh, they're healthy, they're good for us. But bringing a practice into them deepens that experience. So tonight I want to talk much more about the relaxation within the framework of Dharma practice. And there are many significant differences. You know, when we begin to turn towards Dharma as a refuge, as when we begin to uh, aspire to seeing things clearly, to, to when we begin to aspire to this investigative process that everybody is engaged in, in a very intensive way. This investigative process into looking into the nature of who we are. You know, into who we are. What, what's the nature of our experience? Uh, when we sit down and we pay attention, what do we encounter? And of course, the vast majority of us, when we sit down, we encounter a certain degree of unsatisfactoriness. Ryan spoke about last night, a sense of dissatisfaction inner conflict, a lot of little battles that we're doing with ourselves. And what we're doing is not punishing ourselves. We're not, it's not a masochistic activity. We're being with ourselves so that we can begin to uh, explore and learn and understand not only that we're suffering, but also how to get liberated by our suffering, how to, how to bring enough clarity so that we can go and understand the origin of our suffering and what is the path leading to freedom? Ask ourselves, is it possible to be inwardly free 
In other words, is it possible to experience ease of mind in an unconditional way that doesn't depend on a set of conditions coming together, but that we have the inner resources to encounter and discover that unconditioned peace within us under all situations or any situations that we find ourselves in. So no longer are we caught always looking outside of ourselves, whether grasping on to pleasant or blaming the unpleasant. And we begin to take responsibility for our happiness. It's crucial to take that step. And that's the step that we're taking. Why else do it? By being with yourself, you're taking responsibility for yourself and for your happiness. Uh, How does Dharma practice, how does it begin to facilitate that ease of mind? How does it allow us to access that inner power, that inner power that all of us have within ourselves? How does it remove the obstacles along the way, the inevitable, I would have to say, obstacles along the way, obstacles that are not personal to you? It's amazing how common different challenges that one faces when one begins to sit oneself. Even if your karma is so different than the person that's sitting next to you, there's just so many things that we encounter that challenge us, that provoke us, that push us around, that overwhelm us, or that confuse us. Well, the key, and this is something that does not take 30 years, it probably took me 30 years, but it doesn't have to take you 30 years, um, which is approaching practice uh, with a wise intention and wise attitude. Wise intention, wise attitude. So what I mean by that, one thing that I mean by that, and see if it's possible to approach Dharma practice, your meditation, while you're here on retreat. I mean, this is something that develops and cultivates. It's not something that comes automatically to us um, because we don't, we're not used to taking this approach when we, when we look at ourselves. Uh, but is it possible to practice with the intention, with the attitude that we simply want to learn? You know, we just want to learn what's going on. How are things actually in my experience? You know, can we give ourselves the room and the space just to take a look without this whole imposed expectation about how we are supposed to be or how things should be or how things shouldn't be? Can we give ourselves that room to be with ourselves and to simply pay attention in a more open-hearted way to exactly 100% what our actual experience is. So that attitude or that intention to learn, to to discover, uh, actually what it requires is a bit of humility too. A humility that we don't have all the answers and I think everybody in this room realizes that. But it's helpful to reflect. You know, we wouldn't be here if we thought we had all the answers, if we had all, our, all the different expressions of suffering that we deal with on an everyday basis. You probably wouldn't come to IMS. You probably wouldn't put yourself through this. Okay? So we don't have all the answers. Okay, so how are we going to resolve this issue of suffering? Well, the way we resolve is we have to take a look. You know, we have to understand what's going on. And so the attitude in which we practice is so crucial. In the attitude, it needs to be 
And this is something that develops over time, but it really helps to reflect on this when you hit tough spots, when you encounter difficult energies, which you will do, when you hit that wall sometimes, when you hit those experiences that you don't like about yourself, then asking that question, you know, can I make room for this experience? Is it possible to be allowing of this discontent, the fear, the anxiety, the tension, the desire, the grasping, the sleepiness, the restlessness, the doubt? Allowing doesn't mean that you're resigned to it. Very clear about that. Sometimes when we say, be accepting, be allowing, folks will hear that as well. It just means that's how it is and that's how it's going to be. That's resignation. Allowing an attitude of allowing things to be what they are is not resignation. It's the opposite. We're being allowing so that we can understand with a small degree of faith, perhaps, that through understanding we can liberate ourselves. And I don't think anybody would be in this room if they didn't have at least some sense that liberation was possible. That's, that one can clear up suffering and confusion. Absolutely 100% possible. But if we impose expectations, if we keep telling ourselves a story about how we are supposed to do, how we are, we are not supposed to be sleepy since it's the end of the second day, that was supposed to be over in the first day. Um, I am supposed to be more concentrated by now. I've worked really hard. I've come to every sitting. And by the way, we give you a lot of credit when you do come to every sitting. It's really a good thing to do, just so, so you keep that in mind. Um, you know, and, and that does require stretching sometimes. But at this point, feel free uh, to stretch. Uh, because keeping that continuity and sticking with the schedule can be extremely useful. just wanted to mention that. Um, got distracted there. Uh, <laughs> wanted to get that in somehow. <laughs> uh, okay, so where were we? Interested in learning, attitude. Um, okay, yeah, oh yeah, the imposing of all those stories and ideas and, and the weaving of stories about who you are. You know, you're a loser because you've been sleepy for the last two days. You're no good. The person next to you is incredible. Uh, they don't move. Uh, you know, you're going insane. And they're just like sitting there incredibly calm. And incredibly, they must have been practicing for 30 years. Uh, and, you know, blah, blah. That whole comparing yourself to other people and, and uh, all the feelings of uh, resentment and discouragement that you feel uh, because things aren't going your way. Um, it all comes from being attached to an agenda. Just, without a doubt. That's one thing we know, is that that feeling of discouragement and that feeling of frustration and that feeling that this shouldn't be happening and this this should be happening, it's all coming from an attachment to an expectation or an agenda. And I'm saying that, I've looked at it a lot, um, but I want you to look at it. When you're feeling discouraged about how things are unfolding, it's a good time to just investigate that. You know, feel it. Feel that despair, the discouragement, uh, even the resignation. And then just kind of take a look at it, very soft, taking a look at it. Oh, yeah, that's really, I hate this. You know, I hate myself. I'm feeling really bad. I'm discouraged. You know, we can, what we can see is we're grasping onto an idea. And that's what's creating the tension. That's what makes working with what we're working with so much more difficult. It prevents relaxation. In other words, if you're feeling sleepy, It's getting caught up in the resistance to it that's creating an enormous amount of suffering. Because, frankly, just look objectively at that feeling of sleepiness. Is it really a bad experience? It actually isn't. If you look at it, if you actually observe it, it just feels heavy and dull, and your body is kind of bending over, and your mind is in this very dreamy state. Maybe the sitting's actually going by faster. Uh, because of it, maybe you're actually learning how to take little naps like, while you're sitting, and you never thought that was possible. Uh, and then when you go to bed, you really want it, 
but then it doesn't come. Did you ever notice that? <laughs> that happens to me on retreat. You know? Like, <laughs> go to bed, wide awake. Um, so what we can see is that it's our relationship that's creating all that suffering. It's the relationship. And that's true for what we describe as the five hindrances. And Ryan will talk more about it tomorrow. Just briefly going through the five hindrances. These are difficult energies that all yogis encounter at some point or another. One is desire or the grasping. Ryan talked about that, the grasping onto pleasant experiences. Uh, Second is aversion, uh, resistance, um, contracting around painful experiences, you know, fear often is one contraction, or impatience is another one. You're standing in line, it's going too slow. Aversion, that's, you know, why isn't it moving faster? That's the resistance, the impatience. It's not the way you want it to be. Uh, Sleepiness and dullness of mind is a third. Fourth is restlessness, agitation, boredom. Fifth is doubt or self-doubt, oftentimes that's how it gets expressed. So, So those are the five hindrances. And what makes them hindrances is that we get... What creates so much non-relaxation around any of those is that we identify with them and we get caught and lost in them. If we can actually train the mind, and practice is definitely this. Meditation practice definitely needs to, at one point or another, and pretty soon into your practice, it needs to include taking these experiences that are very common. These are experiences that the Buddha described in detail 2,500 years ago. So this isn't new to you. These are experiences that have been around for a long time and meditators encounter them. To learn to take them as objects of mindfulness rather than being so identified with them and so lost in them that that, of course, is how we suffer. And a good example of, of the kind of relaxation that can come out of meditation practice is something that we often see on retreat, for instance. Now, you might think that uh, if you're new to the practice, that um, you know, sleepiness only occurs uh, to, to new students because it's a, it's a new experience. Um, that's not true, actually. Uh, there are many experienced yogis that encounter a great deal of sleepiness in their practice, uh, often you know, particularly intense in the first couple of days. So sleepiness is sleepiness. So your sleepy mind is actually very similar to the sleepy mind that's sitting next to you. Actually, there's not that much difference. You're both kind of dropping and feeling foggy and dull and not particularly mindful. Okay? But there's often a very big difference in terms of the degree of suffering. Because a student that's been there, done that, and this has been several retreats, and they've, they've encountered that energy. And they've also seen that it comes and goes. That there are different phases. That, that sometimes it feels really sleepy and it changes. And there's the, the, the person who's practiced for longer or has done more retreats or, or has practiced awareness with these particular mind states longer, there's more equanimity, pure and simple. They'll, one is less discouraged or less overwhelmed by it. You know, there's there's much, more, much more of a capacity to hold it because we see that it's a transient state. Is arising under certain conditions. It expresses itself. We're very familiar with those expressions. I certainly am. Many phases of my Dharma practice, I've gone through intense periods of sleepiness, and I survived. And I learned a lot, even during those periods. And the things that I learned was patience. And certainly I needed to develop more compassion and kindness towards myself. And those are very important things to learn. Very important things to learn. And so when we're facing something difficult or provocative, even when it's not possible to be mindful, we can also be nurturing other resources within us that creates a tremendous ease of mind. And that's the thing I think that's very important to realize about meditation practice is that there is a lot of emphasis on being mindful, but we have to understand that by, by putting ourselves in this position and by training the mind and working the way we are with all the ups and downs, we're developing so many qualities of mind that are tremendously useful and bring profound relaxation and ease of mind in our everyday life. You know, just that one quality of patience, you know, being with yourself and persevering 
and, and learning to relax that you can survive this particular experience and actually maybe even learn something from it. And I don't mean in an idealistic, new agey way. I mean directly by seeing the experience and learning something about yourself that's really important that has been a cause of suffering for you for many years. Sometimes one moment of insight in the face of something very difficult has profound ramifications in terms of our own life and the way it unfolds. So when things seem like they're going bad, they may not be. The fact is a tremendous amount of learning occurs when we're encountering difficulties. Not just when it's going smooth and we're feeling really great about our practice and we feel really, we're really kicking into that zone of feeling samadhi and all of that. And, you know, it's feeling really great. You feel really good about yourself. And, you know, sometimes that's just feeding your ego. And there's no, no mindfulness or investigation going on at all. You're, you're going to ride it for every second you can get. Uh, you're totally caught in grasping in that state. And there might not be any learning going on. Whereas, you know, you, you, you sit down and, and you feel sleepy and then all of a sudden, you know, self-doubt kicks in. Well, self-doubt, that energy, really needs to be investigated and explored. You know, I've talked about it several times in the smaller groups and might have mentioned it, I think, in the Q&A on whatever, days ago, um, <laughs> years ago, whatever. Um, you know, like looking at the power of mindfulness. Let's look at the power of mindfulness versus no mindfulness. And let's take one of the hindrances, or one difficult energy, which I think is epidemic. It happens on retreat quite often, but it even happens more in everyday life, which is we get racked with self-doubt when we encounter certain situations. And like... What happens when we get caught by that energy? Well, of course, it creates an enormous amount of worry and anxiety. And when we get caught in self-doubt, when we meet something challenging, of course, that, those old stories and those old voices that are, are arising, which express themselves as, I can't do this, I'm not up to it. The speculation and the, and the future thinking and all the old memories about your, your own limitations and the self-criticisms and the self-judgments kick in. Okay? When we get caught in that, it completely undermines us it undermines our growth. You know, it undermines our capacity to make certain decisions or to move in certain directions that we know we need to go, but we're afraid to. And oftentimes it's because we're caught in that energy of self-doubt. And it creates tremendous tension and it can torment us. And in this culture that we're in, the conditions, um, I don't know if it's conscious, but I would just say, like there's somebody behind all of it, but it, it's so apparent to me that the society that we're building, that the community of peoples, there's a tremendous, the conditions are coming together to provoke and reinforce that particular energy of self-doubt. That's what I want to say. You know, it, it's like the whole emphasis on success and failure and how demanding, uh, how many demands are being placed on us all the time, always up-leveling, always challenging us, always pushing us, always asking for more. You know, that constant uh, refrain that we keep hearing about uh, how you're supposed to look or how you're not supposed to look or uh, this, this incredibly limited framework of success and failure. And so we end up measuring and comparing ourselves constantly. And for most of us, uh, success is very slippery. We might have one or two moments of it, or we might have a period of time when it feels that way, but then it starts slipping away because either the bar goes up or we make a mistake. And so it's a losing, it's a losing framework. It creates an enormous amount of fear and anxiety, worry and self-doubt. So obviously that's called dukkha, big time suffering. Now, how to make your way out of that? How to discover a sense of ease in the face of that degree of tension? The most important step that we can take is to start being mindful of those feelings when they arise. So when you're sitting there on a micro level, moment-to-moment level, retreat time, okay, this is the life that we're living, self-doubt may arise in your practice. Okay? So what happens? You're sitting there. We're on a sleepy mode, but it could be restlessness or boredom. One of those states of mind arises. Okay, sleepiness rises. This is the eighth sitting today. You know, you're just praying for mercy, but sleepiness 
descends, you know, within five minutes of being on the cushion. You open your eyes, you stand up, you don't stand up, you still feel sleepy. And aversion to that experience arises. And then very, very quick, we don't like it. And then quickly, you know, we're imposing, you know, something on that experience. We, we don't want to have it. We're not happy with our actuality of our experience. Um, so there's resistance. And then lo and behold, doubt kicks in. Oh, why did I come? I really needed a vacation. There's no way this is a vacation. Okay, it's like way too hard work. We used to have a chan, we, our chan master, you know, I mentioned, died a couple of years ago. And we worked with him for many years on retreat. And oftentimes, like in the middle of the retreat, he would say, you know, this, this is a vacation. And I'd look at him and I'd say, forget it. Uh, there's no way this is a vacation. I'm waking up at 4 o'clock. Someone is banging this wooden thing right next to my head to wake me up at 4 o'clock. I'm sleeping in the meditation hall where I'm sitting and walking all day long. I'm sleeping in the meditation hall with 40 other men in this hall, and half of them are screaming and yelling in their sleep. Uh, and I'm, you know, crawled up in a corner somewhere just trying to get a couple hours of sleep. Okay? So I'm thinking, vacation? Forget it. There's no way this is a vacation. This is like hard. You know, it's challenging. You know, I'd rather be in my room being quiet and sitting like a Vipassana student, you know? Um, So, uh, you know, being pushed like that. But, But really what he was pointing to is how we create our own suffering by our attitude. You know? And that vacation mind is allowing mind. It's spacious. It's allowing for things and for yourself to be what you are actually experiencing. And then you eliminate a tremendous, now you might not believe this, but you eliminate a tremendous amount of suffering in your life if you can allow yourself just to be yourself. And that, let's say again, is not resignation because we have to work with ourselves. Because we might be suffering beings. That might be the actuality of our experience. And so what we need to do is re-educate ourselves, learn how to deal with the actuality of the experience, train the mind so that it can explore and learn not only what is actual, what our actual experience is, but how to liberate ourselves from the suffering that we encounter. You know, how to discover that ease within ourselves, which is unconditional. Now, fortunately, we all have the tools. Okay? Fortunately. It's not something that we have to get outside of ourselves. And that's no big surprise, is it, in a way. If peace is within, where are we going to find it? Well, we find it within ourselves. And we have the inner resources. Certainly, outer conditions can help, like retreats, people who support you in your practice, teachers maybe, teachings, framework. Lots of things can help support that learning, um, for sure. But really what we're doing, we're using those conditions to nurture these innate resources. And the primary one that I want to talk about briefly, let's just take the time, good, uh, is mindfulness. Okay? Because when we talk about being allowing, being accepting, it could border on new age. Okay? And if you knew us up here, personally, you probably wouldn't think we were too new agey. Because, uh, you know, we're not. We live in the city. You know? <laughs> I mean, what can I say? Um, so, mindfulness, though. Okay? Mindfulness is the key. Because everybody in this room has that innate form of intelligence. Everybody outside of this room never heard the Dharma, has never practiced meditation, has never even considered it and would never consider it as mindfulness. It's an innate form of intelligence. Okay. Unfortunately, given the conditions of the world that we all grew up in, that we're living in, that particular form of intelligence is kind of quiet. It's kind of hidden. You know, oftentimes we talk about Dharma practice. How oftentimes we don't really know. Uh, in refuge, taking refuge in the in the, the Buddha is 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 recognizing that there's a potential within us for liberation that maybe we haven't tapped into. Okay, 
And that potential for being mindful, for being present, for being fully awake is within us. And so what we need to do is nurture it, cultivate it, support it. And the way we do it is very simple. It's by practicing it. It's by practicing mindfulness, that mindfulness gets stronger. It gets stronger and deeper. The light gets brighter. Okay. It gets, uh, becomes much more accessible with practice so that we can recollect it or remember to pay attention. And it becomes easier. It becomes more of a place where you can go, where you don't have to work so hard at getting there. You know, it's there. It's, it's, it's something that, it's a way that we begin to live our life. That not only do we, are, do we need to think and develop discernment and make choices and decisions, but we're also bringing mindfulness into that process. You know, that silent, open-hearted attention. That ability to meet whatever's happening right now without any preconceptions. You see, that's what I meant about the attitude. It, to have the attitude of being allowing is very important, but we need to put it into practice. We need to actually be able to develop the ability to meet the present moment, even if it's suffering, to meet the present moment with open-hearted attention so that we can learn, so that we can encounter what's actual and learn from the experience. And so mindfulness allows us to do that. It allows us to meet the experience, and no matter what experience that you have, Painful, pleasant, neutral, interesting, not interesting. Mindfulness, when it meets that experience, that, at least that one moment of mindfulness, does not evaluate or judge that particular experience, that pain in the knee. Mindfulness doesn't reject that particular experience. It allows us to meet that experience, to know it, just as it is. So it's not imposing anything. Okay? Our thinking often kicks in right away and then imposes the idea that the knee shouldn't hurt or that you need to move or whatever. It could be a wise response to sit in a chair, whatever that is. That's discernment oftentimes. But mindfulness lets us know that that knee is hurting, that there's some pain going on there. And so we can meet it. And we don't have to add or subtract anything from it. And you can see, we can see that that gets us in touch with things as they are. Our thinking often is so conditioned by the past, we're constantly imposing our past on the here and now, that it's very difficult to experience ourselves, the here and now, whether it's the environment that we're in, our bodies, our minds. It's very difficult. I think it's quite challenging to meet that genuinely with fresh attention, you know, with that, with that quality of like not knowing. Like, okay, I'm going to sit. Like, let's just take a look at what this body-mind feels like and, and approach it with that fresh attention. Our thinking is conditioned a lot by the old. Mindfulness is not. It just meets the experience just the way it is. And so with practice, that form of intelligence becomes more and more revealing. It reveals things as they are. We begin to make discoveries and we actually learn really, really important things. We begin to actually learn what we need to learn. Maybe what we need to learn, what this life is all about. You know, kind of like, why are we on this planet? It might be that we have lessons to learn. So mindfulness allows us to explore, and it's right inside you. So the pasana, insight meditation, the practice that we're doing right now, uh, the Buddha and his teachings, enormously practical, extremely practical, giving us a practice and a framework to nurture that form of intelligence so that we can use it to look into our own experience. And that's exactly what one is encouraged to do in Dharma practice, is to look for oneself what brings ease of mind. It is certainly not about joining a club. You know, it's not about buying in to a particular view of the world even. Okay? It's about developing the resources within yourself to take a look directly at your experience. I don't know any Vipassana teacher, and I've been in this scene for a very long time, that encourage you to have a particular experience. Like, for instance, we might 
suggest different ways of developing calm. But there's no way we're going to say, get calm, be calm. You should be calm by now. Okay? Uh, what's wrong with you? Aren't you calm yet? Okay? So you're not encouraged to have a particular experience, but we're encouraged through practice to develop the resources so that we see for ourselves. Because no matter how convincing, no matter how charismatic someone might be, no matter how wonderful the message is, we're only going to get it on a certain level. And it might be a necessary level to inspire us and to get us looking and to, and to keep us on the path and, and to keep energizing us. But ultimately, it's really going to come from you seeing it yourself in a very real way. What brings ease of mind? Is there a way that I can develop that ease, that inner peace, that unconditional peace within myself? One thing I wanted to finish with was just a few words about effort in practice. Because obviously, uh, without a doubt, uh, you know, we can talk about the effortlessness of awareness or you know, talk about it in fancy terms, I guess. And mindfulness does clearly with practice. You put your time in, you develop it. Mindfulness does become more effortless. In other words, remembering to do it. Or remembering to wake up. The ability to be present, for instance. After you've practiced it for a while, just like if you were practicing scales on a piano, eventually you're going to be able to play that scale without so much focus and so much work. You know, the, the fingers will remember to do it. And they'll remember by themselves. So you don't always have to be, you know... Uh, um, working at it, let's put it that way. But it takes a certain degree of effort. Okay? But the key in terms of nurturing ease of mind. See, for a lot of us, effort, the mind immediately crunches down around that. Effort. I mean, even that word. You know, I, I'm not fond of that word uh, because of the connotations. You know, because of the connotations, effort. Because most of us, effort means doing something that we don't want to do. You know, or something that we have to do. It's an imposition. Something that's being imposed on us or something we're imposing on ourselves. The kind of effort we want to make in practice is very different. And it's actually a learning experience. And it's an ongoing learning experience. It's a wisdom. See, wisdom practice is ongoing. No formula for how to be wise in every situation you're in. All depends. It's, it's an unfolding it's an unfolding. It depends on the situation, changing conditions. Why is effort the same? Okay. Why is effort? But generally, there are a couple of different principles that can be quite useful, I think. One is the quality of gentleness in the effort. You know, a lot of the effort that we make can have a tone of harshness, uh, of judgmentalness, uh, of striving. You know, of trying to achieve, of pushing oneself into an experience or having an experience. And that, of course, isn't gentle. Uh, we're tough taskmasters, actually, of ourselves, quite often. So the quality is gentle, yet we better believe this. It does take perseverance. And I'm sure you've begun to see that even just in the first two days, if you know. It takes showing up. Absolutely, it takes showing up, even sometimes when the going is rough. You know, it takes showing up. It takes practicing during those times maybe when you don't feel like it. Bringing the light of awareness when there might be some resistance or grumpiness or resentment. Gentle perseverance. The Buddha described wise effort as a balanced effort. Okay, in the two extremes was the striving mind, 
the mind that's trying to become, to achieve, and the mind that's too lax, the effort that is too lax, that there's not enough effort being made, the, the mind that gives up very quickly, that withdraws or pulls out. Okay? So it's the middle path that he suggested. And the image that he used was tuning the strings of a lute. You know, lute's an ancient guitar, you know, stringed instrument. And tuning the strings of the lute. If you tune them too tight, the fingers hurt. Very difficult to play. If you tune them too loose, you really can't create music. It's not really designed for that. You don't really, you don't really get to express yourself fully. So for each of us, what we need to discover, and this is an important part of the path, is what, what does wise effort mean for me? And it can be different for different people. Absolutely can be different for different people. So when we encounter particular challenges, you know, we want to bring discernment to say, well, what's skillful? That's, that's the question. That's the question. It's not what do I feel like doing or what don't I feel like doing or whatever. It's what's skillful right now. You know, what's going what's gonna to support me in waking up? Is it uh, to show up every sitting, for instance, and really staying to the schedule? Or is it maybe taking a sitting off, going for a walk? You know, maybe that's bringing your mindfulness, always bringing your mindfulness with you, no matter what. That, that goes without saying. Um, you know, when you're in pain, physical pain, you're sitting cross-legged, and that's how you've always sat. And that's really how you know you're going to get enlightened, is by sitting cross-legged no matter what happens. Okay, and you're sure of that. And there's no way in hell you're going to compromise that commitment by sitting on a bench or a chair, which is totally second class, right? Uh, can't get enlightened on a chair. You've got to be you know, put up with everything. Okay? So what's wise effort when that's happening? Well, sometimes it really does mean Letting the ego go, letting all that ambition, self, striving, pushing, wanting something, you know, whatever it is, even enlightenment. Okay? And sit in your chair. Does that mean you're renouncing enlightenment? Uh uh-uh. uh. Because you bring your mindfulness with you. Okay, but maybe it nurtures a little more relaxation. Maybe that condition nurtures a little bit more ease. And so we can take a look without being so preoccupied with working with that pain. Because there's so many other aspects of our life that we can explore. We don't have to fixate on one particular experience. We might be able to give ourselves a bit of a break and open things up. And so often when someone might do some standing when they're feeling sleepy. You know, I mean, I know, I know folks that they would never, ever stand up, it, no matter how sleepy they were. And I was one of them, so I'm not judging. Uh, you know, Standing up can be a wonderful way to work with that sleep. And it's wise sometimes to, to stand up if you're feeling really low energy. Uh, but other times it might be valuable just to hang in there with it and kind of see where it takes you. And just like stay with sleepiness and see where it takes you. You know, it might take you into different mental states, resistance, discouragement, despair. But then maybe you can work through that. Be mindful of all those states and reactions and then observe the, the actual experience of sleepiness and you might discover it's not so horrible. That's really just your idea about it that it's so bad. So there can be tremendous learning sitting there ready to fall over. Uh, it still can be valuable. It can still present uh, lots of interesting insights uh, into that. So wise effort, you know, discerning for oneself how to work with difficulties when you encounter it. And remember, it's balanced. And sometimes that requires a self-knowing. It's like we need to know about ourselves on this path. Like Narayan said, it's the freedom comes through knowing the self. And some of us have the habit of being really strivers. You know, we might be type A, or we might never really give ourselves, ever let ourselves off the hook. Or we come in with a lot of ambition into practice, with a lot of expectations. And so we might find ourselves in the striving end. Others may feel kind of beaten down and somewhat, you know, like a lot of anxiety or a lot of fear and and, uh, may not have a lot of confidence or faith that transformation can happen. And so those folks, they might give up more quickly. Like as soon as the fear, anxiety comes up, uh, you know, discouragement kicks in. And then, then you start, you know, 
blowing off the schedule, blowing off the sittings. Uh, because, you know, why bother? Because nothing is going to happen. Uh, and that would be like sliding into lax. And I don't want to judge either extreme. But the point is, because I, th I feel like I probably know them both, especially the striving end of it. But even the lax end, I have to look after once in a while. Um, so uh, knowing oneself sometimes can help guide one in that direction of the middle way, which is if you do tend to give up really easily or undermine yourself with a lot of self-doubt, you might want to stretch a little bit and, and, and really you know, just do the schedule or um, uh, you know, just, uh, just keep showing up, keep coming back, keep working with the body, whatever it might be, but keep trying to be mindful whenever you can remember to do it. If you're a striver, like I said, then are there ways to relax? Yes, there are. Try relaxing your eyes and your face. If you think you're a striver, nurture a little bit more relaxation in the body. You know, uh, uh, I don't want to say skip a sitting. Uh, uh, but there are ways of relaxing if you're a striver. But a lot of it is your attitude. Look at the agenda. Drop the agenda. Drop the, drop the becoming. If you can drop the becoming, life gets really easy. Then you can just be your old self or new self. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to prove anything. And if you can practice without feeling like you have to prove anything to anybody or yourself, oh, tremendous ease. Tremendous ease in that practice. Okay. All right. I think I'm done. So let's just sit for a minute. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings live in safety. And may all beings everywhere be free from all forms of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.